Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date, March 12th, 2023. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues in Under an Hour. It is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. Happy Time Change Day, Canada, except for us folks in Saskatchewan and now Yukon. Uh, Saskatchewan, I think it was 1966, decided to uh, stay on Central Standard Time year-round. Yukon joined the party in 2020, and the rest of Canada, well, I know Ontario and BC are saying, well, when the Americans do it, we'll do it. And apparently Marco Rubio has actually reintroduced a bill that would keep the United States on permanent daylight savings time, I believe it is, should the bill make it through through Congress, which I doubt. But yes, I hope you enjoyed your, you had an extra hour of sleep, right? I haven't changed my clocks in 20 years, so I can't remember if you lose an hour right now or gain an hour of sleep. Uh, we, lose, we lose an hour because we spring... So it's spring ahead, fall back, right? Right. So right, right. in the spring is in the spring you go ahead an hour, so you're losing an hour of sleep. So for the next week, we're going to see an increase of 25 percent in car accidents and heart attacks. Fantastic! Not yes, because <laughs> and I'm not joking. That is an official stat. After the week following uh, the time change, you see a 25% increase in car accidents and heart attacks. And in the fall, when you gain an hour of sleep, we actually see a 25% decrease in heart attacks and car accidents. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, to start the show today, I, before we get into our, our topics, I wanted to get your opinion, Lewis, on this article I had read in the Toronto star yesterday. Now, uh, yeah, Canada, that's the lengths we go to for you. Lewis usually reads the Toronto Star and the Globe, and I take care of CBC. But this happened to pop up in my news feed, and I'm conflicted on it. Now, the title of the article was that more middle-aged women have entered the workforce than ever. So when I opened the article, I thought for sure that was going to be a celebratory thing, saying, great, we've got more women in the workforce, empowering women. And I thought, yeah, I'm all for that. But it wasn't an empowering article. It was a society bad article because women between 55 and 64 have re-entered the workforce because they can't afford to, to live on, I guess, the savings or pensions or whatever it is they're currently living on. So how awful that these middle-aged women had to re-enter the workforce. And I thought to myself, how am I supposed to feel about that? Should I feel that these women are empowered for getting back in the workforce like I'm like a good feminist? Or should I be thinking like a chauvinist that all oh, these poor women need someone to take care of them? And then, but we fail the society, so they have to go back to work. So I, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts. I'm actually seriously conflicted. Uh... <laughs> well, <laughs> um... Uh, I'm I'm bit uh, I'm at a bit of a loss for words. Let's put it that way because well, like, uh, well, I, got, I got I got I got yeah I gotta let this um, soak in a bit. I gotta I gotta figure this out. Like like does this mean that those women were freeloaders? Well, I'm kind of were, wondering because the woke crowd would would have you believe that well they are being empowered by going back to work. But at the same time, it's the same woke crowd that's saying 
damn, these poor women got to go back to work. So, uh, well, who the hell can live off a pension or off savings at 55 years old? Like, who can do that? Like, there is no freedom 55 anymore. Like, like this is nobody can do that. Like, are we we're supposed to like think that this is somehow sexist or like it's um uh yeah i don't i don't know what to feel about this i i don't understand what they would be getting at because it's like as far as i'm concerned everybody should be working until they want to quit working um like i don't think that you should be penalized after 65 years old if you want to keep working until you're 75 years old but I mean, nobody can reasonably expect to retire at 55 years old. No, exactly. And I know that there are, uh, there's, there's some exceptions. I mean, there's some people in unionized positions, for example, that will get offered a buyout when they're 60, for example, because it's actually cheaper for the company to package them out than it is to keep them around those extra five years. And situations like that, fine. Or in like you said earlier, if you got all your ducks in a row and you think you can afford to retire at 60, go for it. I mean, uh, more power to you. Yeah. But yeah, I was just really conflicted because the woke crowd is always trying to empower women. And especially when International Women's Day was last week and Justin Trudeau confirmed for us that trans women are women. So uh, maybe we, maybe some of those trans women are among that 55 to 64 group that are back in the workforce. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of thought it would be a rah-rah empowering women article, but instead it was, uh, oh, these poor women's society has crushed their souls and made them go back to work. So yeah. I like, I, what are we supposed to have here, wokeness? I think that if you actually look at the numbers, you'll probably see that there's uh, a whole bunch of men in the same age group that have had to go back to work too. And it's probably all because of, oh, I don't know, inflation um, and interest rates. I mean, I mean, really, right? I mean, that's probably what it comes down to. And you've got, you know, a handful of hard left politicians to thank for that um so you know the woke the woke brigade brigade kind of did it to themselves <laughs> but but yeah i mean it's 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 kind of confusing to hear you know the toronto star lamenting uh women going to work um yeah. <laughs> that's uh that's a strange one that's a strange one for sure yeah, it really is. So, uh, <laughs> all right, so we'll get on with the show here, Canada. And uh, maybe if you've got an opinion, by all means, uh, send us a message, email us, uh, and you will let us know what your thoughts are on that. But anyway, you know, I'm, you know, Tony, I, I'm convinced that I'm convinced that you know how you know how um, racism is being brought back. Um, it's, it, you know, how uh, segregation is being brought back by the woke, um, how uh, separate living quarters and dorms and U.S. universities for different races have is, is actually a real thing in over 200 schools. Um, and it's all at the request of the woke. 
of of the of the uh, woke brigade and of of people of uh, minority groups, right? They they're the ones requesting it. So I would not be surprised if um, misogyny and sexism are brought back by the woke brigade too. Um, in that they're going to start. Um, promoting the idea that women should stay home and be in the kitchen, um, and I and I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if if that it comes down the pike from the woke brigade. You know what? Yeah, I mean it's it's an upside down world, so uh, yeah, I yeah. wouldn't be surprised either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Canada. So on the show today, a special rapporteur. Don't you get that shot? Healthcare working like it's supposed to, and more. Where do you want to start, sir? Well, let's start with that word that nobody seems to kind of understand. <laughs> yes, Justin Trudeau has a well has not yet appointed has announced he will appoint a special rapporteur to look into Chinese election interference. This has problems written all over it, but this first, before we even go into what's going on with this rapporteur, why don't you let Canada know what Pierre Polyev's reaction was to it? Well, it's the same, the same exact reaction I had. <laughs> what the hell is a rapporteur? <laughs> I mean, it, I, I, Justin, or, uh, sorry, uh, Pierre Polyev went a step further and he says, it sounds like a fake job. Like, <laughs> it doesn't even sound real. Like, what is it? Like, I, I mean, I've read the, the explanation and I still don't get it, but it sounds like it's like, uh, uh, okay, so there's going to be a, a top secret committee that is going to investigate all this top secret information, which means that none of this information is going to become public and none of it is going to be, uh, so Canadians are not gonna know anything that is discussed in this special top secret committee that is investigating this top secret information um, that it has uh, a wide, you know, public, uh, you know, interest and, and is very necessary for, people in general in Canada to know the answers to, but we're not going to. And so this special rapporteur who is uh, going to be handpicked by the prime minister is going to review the top secret report by this top secret committee about this top secret information. And then he's going to release any information that might be pertinent to the Canadian general public's uh, interests, which means he's not going to release anything. And, um, and he's going to report back to Parliament, or he or she is going to report back to Parliament about whether or not the top secret committee reporting on the top secret information has any top secret information that the general public should know about or that the government itself should know about. And, but he's gonna be the only one that's gonna know any of this top secret information 
So we just have to take his word for it. That sounds about right. And that person, he or she will decide if there should be a public inquiry or not. And Justin Trudeau will abide by the decision the special rapporteur makes. So right away, my thoughts were, one, thanks to Pierre Poilievre saying this rapporteur should probably wear a cape and carry a sword. I have puss in boots on the brain. And number two, I think, hey, it's going to be public order emergency inquiry part due. Yeah. We've got special rapporteur appointed by Justin Trudeau who will report to Justin Trudeau. And Justin Trudeau will be able to redact any documentation this rapporteur brings to him. And what's more is that Justin Trudeau can feel free to wash his hands of the situation by saying, yep, this, how did he describe that, that he was going to get a uh, eminent, unimpeachable Canadian? Yes. So this eminent, unimpeachable Canadian can do their investigating and reporting. And we can go ahead and have that election while they're still doing their stuff. And we're distracting you with, oh, yeah, a budget at the end of March. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that unimpeachable Canadian is going to be Gerald Butts. Ooh, yes. Well, he definitely would be an eminent, unimpeachable Canadian. <laughs> and a good friend of the Prime Minister. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> and if it's not Gerald Butts, it's still going to be some, you know, liberal uh, retired justice or something. Like someone who was friendly to the Liberal Party. Well, that's what makes me, yeah, retire, a retired judge is what I'm thinking too, whether it's a retired Supreme Court judge or, yeah, a retired justice who, as you just said, is going to have some kind of tie to the Liberal Party or at least be friendly to the Liberal Party because they're jo- chosen by Justin Trudeau himself. So uh, yeah, it's going to be rigged from the start. Yeah, and and I mean, we talked about this last week, and and I mean, I said then that I think that the uh, that the opposition parties should be the one that choose the person. I mean, and 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 this is a perfect example of why I believe that any inquiry into the government should be conducted by uh, someone selected by the opposition. Um, and I, I I I agree with that even more strongly now. Yeah, I mean, this is a perfect example of it. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's where it's going to be. We're going to we're going to end up with a whole lot of nothing at the end of this. And it's going to be a nothing burger because um, this, you know, you know, liberal friendly rapporteur is going to say that there was nothing untoward happening, which we all know is BS. I mean, it, I don't know. I sent you the. Uh, the list of donors to Justin Trudeau's uh, uh, riding association. I don't know if you posted it on the Facebook page or not for, for common sense, but I didn't get it yet. Oh, Oh, I was sure I sent it to you. Um, Okay. I'll send that right away. It's uh, the, there's like six or seven pages of donors with Chinese names to Justin Trudeau's Writing Association, six or seven pages, and they've all made the exact same amount right down to the penny donation. 
Yeah, and uh, from what I've heard, there's a lot of names that are from, well, places like Vancouver, for example, who yeah. uh, have such a connection to Papineau. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so, I mean, like, this is, this is not insignificant. This is, this is a problem. This is a big problem. And there's a reason Justin Trudeau has been dodging uh, an inquiry, has been, you know, been steadfast against any kind of investigation into it um, because he knows like this is another this is another scandal for the for the most corrupt government in the history of Canada and why Canadians don't seem to give a crap really really bothers me yeah and I can see this rapporteur having the similar instructions to what Justice Rouleau had for the Freedom Inquiry. Don't look into us. Instead, look into CSIS and why there were leaks and why the RCM, you know, and assist the RCMP in their investigation of those leaks and find out how to stop those leaks so that we don't ever have to deal with this again. Well, but don't look over here. I mean, that that's essentially what the uh what it said in the article that Justin Trudeau's marching orders are going to be for this rapporteur is to investigate why, you know, into CSIS's handling of it, not into, uh, you know, the, the Canadian government's uh, involvement in it or into how this is being allowed to happen. No, it's into how CSIS and Canada's intelligence agencies um handled the situation well yeah okay that's not what we want we want an investigation into why this is happening who's letting it happen who knew about it all of that i mean we know the answer to this but nobody seems to want i mean no of course he doesn't want the investigation to be about him uh but but i mean like the fact that that you know this investigation is going to be about the whistleblower and how to you know stop that from happening again that should be what is angering canadians and and getting canada you know sorry getting canadians um questioning you know why why do we continue to vote this way why do we keep voting for this corruption i mean it's it's unbelievable i mean they don't even try to hide it anymore no, that's, yeah, you're absolutely right. They definitely don't. And uh, well, speaking of hiding things, why don't we just segue that into the next topic? Now, the uh, national—I can't even remember what the what NACI stands for—but anyway, the National Agency for Something Immunity. They have not. They're recommending now that as long as you're up to date on your 75th COVID booster shot, you don't need to get a spring booster now because they finally realize that oh. <laughs> you know what, it's not that dangerous after all. And the reason I bring that up is because yesterday, or the I think it was Friday, March 10th, marked the uh, three-year anniversary that the COVID pandemic was declared. So a brief synopsis of what happened with Canadian common sense and said pandemic. Lewis and I had supported the ideas of what became the Barrington Declaration before it ever became a Barrington Declaration. Lewis and I, and you can go back three years if you really want to, said that, you know what, why don't we let those who are young and healthy, not immunocompromised, keep working, pay some taxes, pay for the health care to protect those who are vulnerable. 
And well, that's exactly what the Barrington Declaration said. Yes, let those younger, healthier people keep working, get herd immunity, and let us take care of those who really need it. And well, David Redman, who was once the Alberta Emergency Response Coordinator, said the exact same thing. But we were all called, what were we called, Lewis? Conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy theorists. And then we went out on a limb and we said, you know what? That virus had to have come from a lab. And we shared with you data from the US military about how the lab was cordoned off and there were cell phone pings everywhere but the area in the lab itself. And then we talked about the gain of function research from the funded by the National Institute of Health and Eco Alliance from the, the US. And then we talked about the double arginine CGG, CGG strain found in the COVID virus that does not occur in nature and therefore what had to have been introduced in a laboratory environment. And we were called, again, what were we called? Uh, I believe it was conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy theorists, yes, yes, that was what it was. And now three years later, we're actually, we're right. We were right all along. We were also correct about uh, the dangerous side effects of the vaccine. We were also right about the, uh, the massive amount of debt and uh, inflation causing spending that the government was doing. We were right all about that. We predicted it right when they first announced how much money they were going to be spending and how they were going to be paying people to stay home. We predicted all of the uh, side effects of those actions, such as inflation, interest rate hikes, and uh, lack of employees, uh, the difficulty for businesses to find workers. We predicted all of that, and we were right about all of it, even though even after we were proven correct, after we were proven right, we were called. Wait, I know this one. Conspiracy theorists. You are correct again, Tony. It's this has been the most bonkers three years. Uh, I mean, it's like we're living in the upside down world here. It's, it's like, I mean, we're, you're right about stuff yet. You're a conspiracy theorist. Uh, how, how dare you be right about stuff that makes you a racist or, or a misogynist or, or some kind of phobe. I mean, it, there's just nothing that people won't stop at to discredit you uh, for being right. I mean, we were right. That doesn't make us conspiracy theorists. It makes us intelligent, you know, uh, critical thinkers and independent thinkers. We weren't just taking the government line and swallowing it and regurgitating it for people. I mean, we were actually looking at what was happening and making, you know, informed, educated uh, uh, opinions on what was happening. And I mean, some things are beyond opinions. It's like anytime something like massive amounts of government spending uh, have occurred, you get higher inflation rates, you get 
uh, higher interest rates. I mean, this is all like historical stuff. It's all happened before. So when it happened again, it was pretty easy and simple to predict that those things were going to happen because they happened every time the government has done something like this. And this time they did it much deeper, much bigger, much, much, uh, you know, much more drastic than they've ever done it before. I mean, we've never shut down our economy for a whole year. Um, that's never been done before. So, I mean, there was only one logical um, a conclusion to come to about what was going to happen in the economy and in monetary policy afterwards. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take a genius to, to figure that out. And, and the thing is, is that all these so-called experts um, couldn't figure it out. That's, that is something I've learned over the past three years is that being an expert means jack all because they all they're doing is repeating the uh government narrative and the uh and they get and they get to be called experts because of it and it, it really it really opened my eyes to the corruption between the media and the government and the talking heads for different um, different special interest groups that they will say whatever it takes if it means that they get funding or that they get uh, they get special treatment or that they get um, you know that they get to be the guests on on uh, media shows and stuff like that they will say whatever it takes um, and and I mean and then we also saw uh, how the pharmaceutical companies have basically bought um government and the media i mean last night my wife and i were or not last night a couple of nights ago my wife and i were watching um 48 hours and every single commercial break had an ad from pfizer for uh uh for the vaccine or for uh Paxlovid or something like that. I can't remember the name of the drug. It's their it's their COVID, it's their COVID drug. It's not a vaccine, it's a treatment drug. Um, which by the way is based on uh ivermectin. Um you conspiracy so, theorist. <laughs> so uh but every single commercial break, every single one had had an ad from Pfizer for for uh covid related drugs and vaccines. Yeah. I mean who do you who do you think the 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 news organizations for those broadcasting companies are going to uh be supporting it's not going to be the truth it's not going to be these people like you and I Tony who who only want what's good and what's right for people, uh, they're going to support the company that's paying their bills. And the company that's paying their bills is Pfizer. Yeah, I think I think it was Dan Bongino who had, uh, it might've been Sean Hannity. Anyway, probably Dan Bongino had made a, a clip of, and uh, it was from, yeah, 
probably the whole spectrum of networks in the states and every news they're all their news shows and it was when they go to a commercial break it was always brought to you by pfizer and yeah. it, it went on for about a minute and a half and he said we could keep going with this but i think you get the point and uh you're absolutely right i mean here's the funny thing with i found with even like even three years ago and we, we had talked about this throughout the last three years if two dumbasses from rural canada who basically just have cell phones and laptops to, to do research are able to follow the data and and watch the the story build and actually figure out where this virus came from how the hell can the people who are so-called experts be so willfully blind it's 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 embarrassing to me honestly yeah well and i mean i think we all know the answer to that i mean the, there's a financial uh, benefit for them to do that whether it's from Pfizer or if it's from government funding I mean I mean look at look at it's the same thing with climate change right I mean uh, I don't think anybody really knows the answer right? and I mean I think and the people who do know the answer won't say anything because um, because the thing is is that if you contradict the climate change narrative uh, if you're a scientist and say well my study has determined that humans are not the cause of climate change um you'll lose all your government funding so now you don't have a job so you're going to say what the narrative is so that you continue to receive your funding like this is the problem with science today is that science is not science anymore um there might be some aspects of it that are but i mean but when it comes to big uh public policy things like covid and climate change and uh, other things like that, there seems to be a financial incentive to uh, the scientists to toe the company line. You know, it's uh, you say what the government wants you to say or else you're gonna lose your funding. Um, and that seems to be a pretty common thing in a lot of these, uh, you know, government policy, um, uh, uh, these 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 areas of government policy when it comes to big social issues like that um and uh and it seems like there's there's just nobody with a backbone to actually tell the truth about things yeah all right well let's actually speaking of having a backbone let's segue that into our our next story here is a group of orthopedic surgeons in ottawa decided to grow a backbone uh, 26 orthopedic surgeons in Ottawa have created an association, and the name is quite long, uh, Academic Orthopedic Surgical Association Associates of Ottawa, and they've decided that, you know what, there's, a, there's an empty operating room at the Riverside Clinic of the Ottawa Hospital. We're going to rent out that operating room on Saturdays, and we're going to do hips and knee surgeries to help stop the government uh, or help not stop but help to alleviate the uh the government backlog on hips and knees because allegedly the ottawa area is actually has the longest wait lists in ontario and i thought this is exactly what you were talking about a few weeks ago and 
it's it was with a hospital in Vancouver, but this time it's actually coming to fruition. They've got a six month lease. They've got a plan to do 120 surgeries, I believe, in those six weeks, six months, sorry. And they're doing it, baby. They did 10 last weekend alone. How dare they? How dare they indeed? Because you know they are poaching staff from the public system. Actually, you know they're hiring volunteer staff from the public system, paying them more. And because they're working on weekends, they're able to charge the Ontario government more than what the regular rate is. And I know that somebody said this on this show that the staff are being treated better and they're likely happier in this setting. God, who the heck would have said something so stupid like that? Um, geez. Me? Oh, you, you did <laughs> God, how could you forget me? Come on. Um, Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I mean, I mean, how, why this is even controversial is beyond me. I mean, it's, it's uh, doctors took an oath and they're following through on their oath. You know, the oath does not say that you know they they should only help people who uh if they if they uh if they don't have to pay or well, they, they still don't have only... to pay well okay let me rephrase that oh really wait yeah. let me okay they don't have to pay so it's part of the public health system it, it's all covered by ohip you betcha because uh let me find where else where I wrote that next part. Yep, it is, uh, the surgeon said this is part, uh, and the hospital agreed, this is part of a cost recovery model because the hospital actually has received more funding for hips and knees than they can use. So they're just using existing funding to help fill in the backlog. So no, it's not a user pay at all. It's all on the OHIP card. Okay, well that, I mean, why is this controversial? Because the the the, bar, the chief of the bargaining unit of the nurses union says this is terrible. This is an outrage because someone is jumping ahead of the queue. And what happens if they need emergency care? Now suddenly they're going to create a backlog in the ORs. Um, this is hips and knees. This is one of the most routine surgeries um, in Canada. But but. Is anybody actually jumping the queue or is this just, they're just taking no. people off from the front of the queue? I mean, exactly what they're doing. Like, I don't understand why this is even controversial. I mean, obviously the union is not happy about this because those nurses and nurses and doctors are working outside of the union. Uh, so they're they not collecting, that. so they're not collecting dues on the Ooh. money being made. Right. right. Um so I mean that that's the only thing I could possibly see is why this would be controversial is because the union is pissed that these people are working outside of the union. Um, yeah. So don't be surprised if those nurses and doctors are told by the union that, that their unions that they have to stop or they will lose their union privileges. Well, that can happen for the RNs and the practical nurses i guess likely the clerical staff but uh good thing you're sitting down lewis listen to the numbers here for now they're working one day there's working saturdays the registered nurses 
are, are getting paid 750 bucks a day for their services. The licensed registered practical nurses, 550 bucks. Clerical staff, 600 bucks. That is damn good money for a day's work. I mean, I don't know how long the day's work is, but even if it's a 12 hour day, God damn, I'd take it. Wow. That's good yeah, money. That's like really good money. Okay. So they could work a Saturday and a Sunday and not work in the union at all during the week <laughs> and make enough money to live off of. I mean, so here's the thing, right? Like this is where the Canadian governments, the, go the provincial governments, the federal government, they all need to get their heads out of their asses because this is, if you, if you, so the governments keep saying, oh yeah, you're, you're going to steal nurses and doctors from the public system to work in the private system. Well, why do you think that is? It's because the public system is so poorly run and the people in it are so poorly treated that they of course are going to want to work in an environment where they make more money, where they're treated better, where the, where the, uh, the system runs smoother uh, it run, it's better. It's more, uh, economical. It's they, they, uh, there isn't so much wastage of money on upper management. I mean, because our healthcare system, and I've said this before, the Canadian healthcare system is 10 times the healthcare administrators than the German healthcare system does. And Canada has or in Germany has more than twice the population of Canada. And we have 10 times more uh, bureaucrats in the healthcare system than Germany does. Well, they are not needed. These are, these are jobs that pay really, really well. Oftentimes they are paid more than nurses and RNs and, and lab techs and all of that. And yet they're not the ones delivering the healthcare. They're not, they're just pencil pushers. And they're, and in many cases, these jobs are not required anymore. I mean, obviously they're not required. Look at other healthcare systems in the world are doing it without them. So why do we need them? Why are they necessary for us? Because, because it's the only, the only entity that just keeps building and building and building uh, more and more jobs that, that really aren't needed is government. Government does this on a regular basis at the behest of unions. Uh, and, uh, and they just, it, it is the, 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 you want to know why we pay so much in taxes? It's because of that. Yeah. I don't, I, the, to me, this is not controversial and it shouldn't be controversial. I mean, the fact that Canadians are going to be, they're going to have shorter lines. They're going to get treated sooner and better. And all of this should be what everybody is focusing on. But instead, no, we're focusing on the fact that it's a private entity and that they're making a profit. Oh, God forbid someone makes a goddamn profit in this country and, and for doing something that benefits society. Absolutely. And uh, while you were in that little mini rant there, and thanks for that, I like the way you ended that, um, it, it, it struck me. Another reason why I bet you a lot of nurses will happily give up their Saturday and the, the surgeons is they're actually spending a Saturday doing what they signed up for, which is providing care to Canadians, not filling out stupid paperwork and 
not checking in with charge nurses every 15 minutes, actually helping patients. And the surgeons, oh, God damn, this is on top of their five hours a week that they're allotted or five hours a month or no, five hours a week, I think it is, that yeah. they're allotted by the by the College of Physicians and Surgeons. So yeah, of course they're going to jump on it. They actually get to do their jobs. And that's what the healthcare professionals or not professionals, the administrators seem to have forgotten. And this is all funded by the by the taxpayer through, like they say, the, the OHIP cards in Ontario. So this is what healthcare is supposed to look like. We're, we're taking care of, of backlogs without, you know, that, that evil words, user pay. So yeah, the union can get stuffed as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I don't give a, I don't give a crap about all the the politics in, in in healthcare. I mean, all I care about is the healthcare. All I care about is that people get they see their doctors. Or people can actually get doctors. They can see their doctors. They can see the specialists. They can get their operations, and all in a timely manner. I mean, it is absolute BS that in Canada surgeons are only allowed to operate one day, one day a week. I mean, that's, they're surgeons. They're supposed to be operating and they only get to operate one day a week in the healthcare system in this country. I mean, these, these surgeons are operating two days a week now. God forbid. And, and they're going to, and they're going to uh, destroy that backlog in six months. I mean, and all it takes is one extra day. I mean, why is this such a problem in this country for us to catch up? I mean, if we got rid of all those administrators that we don't need, we could afford to have an extra day of operating for all these uh, surgeons. And we wouldn't have backlogs. We wouldn't have 18-month waiting lists. We wouldn't have you know, people suffering in pain or people dying while waiting for an operation, which happens 11,000 times a year, by the way, in this country. And, uh, but no, it's more important that we have all these, all these administrator jobs for the unions. Yep, exactly. So uh, let's move over to Quebec, staying in the healthcare sphere. Uh, Francois Legault in the last provincial election had made a pledge and he's now following through on it. He is going to allow for the private sector to open up two mini hospitals in Quebec, a pediatric center in Quebec City and a geriatric center in Montreal. And they have not yet been built. They've not yet been tendered out. But the, uh, the legislation that he's put out has said that they will be privately run. They'll be privately administered, but they will be fully publicly funded in inside the Quebec healthcare system. And all I can think is, okay, fantastic. They're set up for non-emergency care. So that means that obviously emergencies will go into the publicly administered and funded hospitals. But again, I just this. There is no user pay with these private clinics these be completely 100 funded through the quebec public health plan and again this is the same kind of stuff that you and i have talked about for over 20 years already and 
it took a crisis for it to come to fruition, but bravo, Premier Lego. It's about time. I mean, I, I just, I'm so tired of, I mean, why, why does it have to be non-emergency? Why can't it be emergency? Why can't, why can't the, the, uh, the, the private deliver, privately delivered uh, uh, healthcare delivery services, why can't they do the emergency delivery? I mean, if they can deliver the, the non-emergency uh, healthcare as well as they do, why not let them do emergency as well? Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the next step. I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. Why can't they just do a full service, right? I, I, yeah, I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I do. I mean, when they announce stuff like this and they go, we want to make it clear. It is, this is non-emergency only. And there's this, like, sigh of relief from Canadians watching it. Oh, my God. Thank God it's not the emergency health care. <laughs> only the non-emergency health care <laughs> we're safe yeah <laughs> like what come on now uh there was a quote from a gentleman from the montreal economic institute that again summed up what we have said for years and that was he said access to care in a timely manner is more important to quebecers than the administrative structure of the care facility and i thought at least somebody gets it yeah thank you sir so much now here's the dark side of both of these scenarios and it's not the facilities themselves it's not the doctors in said facilities it is the federal government now this was a very short story on power play that i saw midweek this past week and it is that the federal government is actually clawing back small amounts of Canada health transfers to provinces who dared to allow citizens to access private health care services. Now, it's not a huge amount of money when you look at exactly how much money gets poured down the healthcare black hole every year. Uh, Quebec was the quote-unquote worst offender and are getting $21 million clawed back. And BC, I think, was around $11 million. Um, Saskatchewan, 745,000. New Brunswick, I think, was about 30,000. So we're not talking about a lot of money being, being clawed back. But I can't understand why a government would want to punish a province because citizens decided to, well, pull money out of their pocket and actually get a service done when they needed it done. I mean, that's uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I... It's unreal. I mean, I, I, I mean, because all they're doing is they're punishing, like they're taking money out of the healthcare budget to punish us for getting healthcare. Well, yeah. Um, I remember, uh, remember years back, my my dad had a uh, stomach aneurysm, and he went to a hospital in Calgary to get it checked over to a doctor in Calgary, and uh, the doctor said. Oh, well, it's not really big enough for us to worry about yet. He was like, "What? Yeah, well, it's only whatever number of centimeters, and unless it's this number of centimeters, then we're not going to worry about it." So he went down to Great Falls, Montana, and got it taken care of. And he made a note that the doctor that he saw in Great Falls was actually a guy from Saskatoon who 
left the country and decided he could actually practice medicine in Great Falls. And um, yeah, and that doctor down there said, well, it's not a really big one, but yeah, we'll take care of it. Done. He was in and out of there in a day. And I'm guessing situations like that would be why the hell the Alberta government might get punished. I'm not sure, but uh, it's, it's ridiculous that the federal government would punish a province because some of their citizens dared to go their own way. Like, yeah, and it happens more often than you think, too. I mean, the fact that uh, where where you go in to see your doctor or to the specialist and they say, yeah, you've got this, but it's not bad enough for us to uh, take care of. Um, this is something that actually happens quite a bit. It's happened to me um, with an issue I had with my knee. And I said, you know, um, well, yeah, actually, this is a pretty big issue for me um, because my job is physical. Um, it's the only way I make my livelihood. You know, like I don't sit at a desk. And, um, and it's something that I had to take on my own, pay out of my pocket to get someone to treat me because the healthcare system wouldn't. And it's, it's, uh, it's wrong. I mean, the, the, the Canadian healthcare system is a money pit. It's a black hole that we just pour money into every year. And it's, and it's all because of the sheer amount of wastage that happens every year. Um, the, we, the government, the taxpayer provides, it, most provincial budgets, are not most, every provincial budget, between 50 and 60% of the budget is set aside for healthcare. And, it's, and, we, and we don't have enough healthcare. Um, it's about damn time that someone, that, that someone overhauls our, our healthcare system so that we spend the money where, it's put, where, where it can do the, the most good and stop wasting it on jobs and positions and management and all this that is not required. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and yeah, I mean, these examples in Ottawa and in Quebec are hopefully the start of something big, but we'll, uh, we'll keep you posted, Canada. I did try to reach out to the Academic Orthopedic Surgical Associates of Ottawa, but there's a, they have no contact info yet, but I guess they just started. So I'll, I'll keep on checking in to see if I can't find some contact info because I would love to have one of them on the show. Yeah. So, um, all right, Canada, we started the show talking about the woke brigade and we're going to wrap the show up talking about the woke brigade. Um, Lewis, you had pointed out that the words racist, sexist, misogynist keep coming up with uh, government officials. And then I talked a bit about the uh, committee looking into the Chinese election interference and you didn't realize there was even more there. Um, so I'll start with that. The committee investigating the election interference was meeting. Uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie had stated at some point that she looked her Chinese counterpart in the eye and told him that Canada would not tolerate election interference. Um, she didn't really put her money where her mouth was because only one Chinese diplomat has been denied a visa so far. And... Michael Cooper, who's a conservative MP on the committee, had said in a statement that 
Um, you know, Minister Jolie, you said or said earlier that you looked your Chinese counterpart in the eye, directly in the eye, and told him Canada would not tolerate election interference. And I'm sure he was intimidated. And then he carried on with whatever the rest of his statement was. Well, you have sworn that he called her a word that I can't say on the air, because suddenly women on the committee from all parties were saying, or I should say, all other parties. We're saying what a sexist remark that was and talking about his microaggressions and that he should apologize immediately and he has refused to apologize. And I guess I'm, I'm, I must have interpreted it wrong because I thought when he had said, I'm sure this guy was intimidated, I thought it was, I'm sure that China is feeling really intimidated by Canada, but boy, I am obviously way off track. Yeah dummy i mean (laughs) (laughs) you're you're too white and too male to understand um it's i mean really i mean all he was basically saying was you know china a world mega power that produces most of what we buy they own most of our natural resources our mines our mills all of that they buy up most of our natural resources that that this megalith of a country was intimidated by a country that they could ruin in a week by just shutting off all uh trade routes um was so intimidated by us right like they're a megalith, they're a, a mega power, and we are what the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world. And I mean, we're we're just and when and when I mean California has a bigger economy than all of Canada. Um, we are not, we don't hold power on this planet. Right. I mean trying to give a crap what we say. Exactly. And that's what he was meaning. It's like, ooh, you look him in the eye. Ooh, he is so scared. No, it's not because she's a woman. It's because it's Canada. You know, I mean, like, if you want to send a message, you don't look him in the eye. You, I mean, it could have been, like I said before, it could have been Sylvester Stallone who said, I looked him in the eye. And Michael Cooper would have said the same thing. It's like, it's not, I mean, this is like Canada needs to actually grow a backbone, show that we're serious about this and do something about it. Not say I looked him in the eye, whatever, man. I mean, like, that's not going to deter anybody. I mean, I don't care who you are. It's not intimidating. I mean, oh God, she looked me in the eye. I better stop doing this election interference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly so it's uh yeah overblown as usual but i guess that's yeah. uh what they do so um, just like just just like anybody on like any anybody on the left if you criticize a woman if you criticize someone of 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 color if you criticize someone with a different sexual orientation than yourself then it's always a phobe it's always because you're a homophobe or you're a transphobe or you're a racist or you're a sexist or something. Um, 
not ever is it because that person you're criticizing is a dumbass and deserves to be criticized. Um, it's always because you are a bigot. And it's, it's something that really irritates the hell out of me. Uh, because, I mean, it, I mean, we've got the, the Governor General of Canada now saying that she experiences misogyny and racism online and all this and that indigenous girls are more susceptible to this than anybody else and all of this i mean we went through 10 years of a prime minister who was called literally hitler by the canadian media i mean this is it, it but because he's a white male that doesn't count no 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 no, that, that criticism was legit. But if you say that, you know, that the person that you're criticizing is terrible at their job, it's because you're a sexist and a racist. I mean, it's unless that person is white and male, then, then it's okay. I mean, I'm so sick of this BS. It's like, it's like, no. No, no, no. We should be allowed to criticize people. If you're being racist, if you're being sexist, that's different. But criticizing someone does not make you sexist or racist. If you're calling, if you're saying that, you know, this person sucks at their job because they're a woman or because they're uh, uh, black or Chinese or whatever, that is racist. That is sexist. And that's definitely wrong but if you're saying that that person sucks at their job because they suck at their job that's just the truth yep exactly i think that's a good spot to wrap up the show it doesn't hurt to tell it like it is sometimes so all right canada thank you so much for joining us and as a positive note to end the show um look this morning and Episode 207 is doing almost record numbers. And that was the titled is Canada on the, is Canada broken? Is Canada on the, at a breaking point? That's what it was. Is Canada at a breaking point? And we've got almost record numbers of that episode. So thank you to everybody who's uh, tuned in and enjoying that one. And we hope you enjoy this one just as much. And until next week, it is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. Good night. Good night, Canada.